is Dr. Charnel Wolverton Sihan, and this is Craig Walker. We are co-hosting today with an, an amazing soul that has been a huge part of my wake up back in the day. I read his book, Life After Death. He um, He's a, a big, huge, um, I'm fangirling a little bit because <laughs> I read his book years and years ago, and it's all about near-death experiences. And so today we're going to have him um, share a little bit about his background and some of his um, study. And if, if you don't mind, Mr. Moody, if you could please um, g- just give us a little bit about your bio. So maybe some people aren't familiar with your work or who you are, that they would have a little sneak peek of, of what's going on and where you are. Well, I have, I've, my life has been mostly curious following my curiosity. I uh, was a philosophy major at the University of Virginia and became captivated by ancient Greek philosophy. And uh, in reading Plato, my first few days at the University of Virginia, age 18, I saw this, the whole thing, the Republic is, is structured in this, just like this, the whole thing, just sort of focuses in and the end on this very dramatic story of a warrior who was believed dead on the battlefield, but to revive during his funeral and told his colleagues of going into another world and uh, going through a passageway and seeing his life in review and all these things. And this was startling to me because not being religious, I mean, I just, you know, that was beyond... The idea of an afterlife to somebody whose main interest at that time was astronomy was, you know, that was not in the cards and I I never took it seriously, but I sort of immediately uh, became captivated by Plato at age 18. And the fact that he took this seriously to, to me, that was a wow. So I asked my professor, what's this all about? And he said that, Early Greek philosophers studied these cases of people who were apparently dead, but revived. And there was a debate about them, like Plato was saying, yeah, this is actual, but the Democritus, who was the atomist who figured out everything and made it little bits, said, no, this is the residual biological activity in the body, the little atoms and all of this. You know, he said, there's no such thing as a moment of death. And it's interesting, you know, at 2022, <laughs> still the same debate, right? This, now we call it oxygen deprivation. But, but I was intrigued by this. And then three years later, um, I met an actual human being, the finest guy I ever knew, Dr. George Ritchie, who had such an experience. He was a professor of psychiatry at UVA at the time and well-known to the students because of his fascinating story and his kindness to everybody. So um, I went on, got a PhD in philosophy, uh, uh, began to teach philosophy, and I heard a lot of these stories from my uh, philosophy students and from my colleagues. And uh, then after teaching philosophy for three years, went to uh, medical school and Having come from a law enforcement family, I uh, sort of gravitated to forensic work. I, I uh, was a forensic psychiatrist back. It's 
a whole different thing now, but this was back in the 80s and I worked in a maximum security unit for the criminally insane. Well, you know, dealt with these people you read about in the National Enquirer, you know, <laughs> who are actually even weirder in reality than they are in the movies. And but it was a fascinating experience. And, but throughout this, I've continued to um, to be fascinated by these near death experiences. And um, you know, it's like I think one thing is kind of. <clears throat> I guess our regret is um, that I think people miss some of the important things I've said in my book, Life After Life, which has now created a situation where it's, um, well, what I mean is, it's like I said plainly in this book that, look, folks, that, you know, in this period of time, the question of life after death is not a, yet a scientific question. It's still a philosophical question which it not that's you know people now think to say that something is scientific is good you know whatever they think it the word may mean but in reality it's it's not a bad thing to say that the question of life after death is not yet a scientific one it has happened to many of the great you know the great questions but it's uh, we don't know exactly yet how to investigate it is the thing and um, so that's kind of what I'm known for. And, uh, you know, all of my interests come from astronomy and from, uh, and from uh, Greek philosophy and, you know, philosophy in general. And, um, and I was also a comedian for a while. That's always been <laughs> Wow, I didn't know that. I was, it, you know, when it really started taking off right about the time I was doing my psychiatry residency. So it had to be one or another. But, you know, I, I enjoyed the comedy too. <laughs> yeah, so that's kind of, and I'm a very happily uh, person with two um, wonderful grown sons um, who are doing well and a grandson and and my two wonderful younger kids, Carter, who's 23, and Carol Ann, who's 21, both adopted at birth. And uh, it's just been a wonderful experience. And I saw Montana behind your, uh, you, you there on your, on your screen. And uh, my, my Native American Blackfeet uh, daughter is, was born in. Got okay. back. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we were there. It's like uh, she's been ours from the very beginning. And it's really fascinating. You know, it's, you learn about that, uh, they call it epigenetics. I mean, this kid, when she was three years old, I used to push her in the stroller, but age three, no, unstrapped. Started walking three to six miles a day, gathering birds' nests, or you know, like uncanny. Like it was just amazing. And you know, my sister brought her, bought her a teepee when she was three years old. My wife and I, think, and I, but Caroline zipped into it. We, she kind of moved into the teepee, but she's just delightful. Yeah. So Montana, that's a good feeling place for me.
Montana is my my birth state, my home state. And so, yeah. And Craig is actually in the UK. I'm in the north of England, so a few thousand miles between us. <laughs> yeah, I saw I saw the um, the logos there seem distinctly British. So. Yes. <laughs> oh yeah, behind <laughs> me, yeah, the England so, football team, yeah. So Craig, in all of the hustle and bustle of the tech stuff, I apologize I didn't get you to uh, to say any beginning words or whatever. So please feel free to jump in and then ask a question. Yeah, well, um, Raymond, I mean, I, I've uh, been looking at some of your stuff and, and obviously your, your story is just absolutely amazing. Um, I mean, particularly in, a, in an era that is so fearful of um, death. I mean, the past several years has been all about the fear of death, really, and the threats of it. Yeah. And your story is one that just kind of gets to the very root of it, is in that 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 it's not an, it's not an end it's a transition if it happens at all um and and you know you obviously had this experience so so why don't you take us into that a little bit um so what what happened with you well i am very proud and delighted and honored that my to my family insulated me from religion and the deep south i just <laughs> my my dad was, uh, you know, a professional military officer who was a surgeon and who served in the Pacific Theater in World War II. Mm. Well, I mean, he went away to war on the day that I was born. And so anyway, I mean, you know, I didn't understand this as a child. I mean, all the way it appeared to me was that he was always kind of sarcastic about religion. And... Uh, but then later I put it together, well, you know, he must have been soured on that by what he saw. But the way, and then later, I guess during his midlife crisis, he had a brief flirtation. I, they hauled me to a Presbyterian church for three, three times. And I, my dad realized, no, it's not for Raymond. And I, then I don't know if he continued after that or not, but, uh, but basically I'm, uh, I, I, um, when you don't have some sort of psychological template for the idea of an afterlife, um, what are they talking about? Isn't it a self-contradiction to say that there's life after death? It is. And, um, but I had become reconciled at an early age with the fact that we live in a sort of sphere of nonsense <laughs> and but this was okay to me now when i was a kid my favorite writers were L lewis carroll and i read both of the books and um edward lear you may or may not know he, he was also a nonsense poet of that same period and dr seuss who you don't have so much in britain but he's you know, and I grew up with those things. And I understood that nonsense is nothing bad. Nonsense is good. So then when I figured out about the same time that this thing we're in is nonsense. You know, if you ask yourself, how big is it? You know what? Your mind goes out to the wall. But it, oh, it's got to be something on the other side of the wall. But it makes no sense that, uh, you know, that it goes on forever either way. And I remember... Uh, uh, read that George Bataille, the writer, said, uh, Nonsense is the end result of all sense. 
And you really learn that as, you know, studying philosophy. I mean, well, doesn't the arrow travel from A to B? Yes. Well, uh, how? It, well, then in order to travel to A from A to B, doesn't it have to get halfway there first? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, in order to travel from here to here, doesn't it get half, have to get halfway? There? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then it doesn't travel to here to here halfway here you know i mean what is this thing we're in and it's you know it's unintelligibility is a very important concept so see to me this was the thing i thought what are they talking about <laughs> it's the beyond beyond what what meaning does it have to say beyond death these things and but i acknowledge that people have warm fuzzy images and thoughts and feelings in their mind but they don't know what they're talking about okay and then then but nonetheless these near-death experiences and also the fascinating process of calling up the spirits of the deceased which is you know something that sounds you know, just absolutely impossible, but which is actually an everyday reality in the Victorian era. I mean, everybody knew about this in Britain and the U.S. People would gaze into the mirror and see the spirits and so on. Then radio came, TV, so people were focused differently. But, you know, these were just fascinating things to me because things that don't make any sense are inherently fascinating to me. And so... There I was, and then I've heard thousands and thousands and thousands of stories of these things, knowing full well that Plato was right in saying that the big problem in rational investigation of the afterlife is there's got to be some kind of story to it, right? It's like, um, I got out of my body and went through time. But also that even if you had a bazillion stories, it's not going to add up to a rational proof of an afterlife. You need some set of concepts to link the experiential narratives to the statement that there's an afterlife. And Plato, that's a big problem, which, you know, the parapsychologists run roughshod over. They don't get this, but I mean, it's a, it's a real problem. And so... Um, then David Hume said, rightly, I mean, if you think about this, by the mere light of reason, it seems difficult to prove the immortality of the soul. And that's reality, folks. He said, some new species of logic is requisite for that purpose, and some new faculties of the mind that they may enable us to comprehend that logic. And Hume was saying it ironically. Meaning, you know, that that's obviously impossible, is his point. Because the logic we have has done very well for a long time. And, you know, we think we know our minds pretty well. The idea that we could come up with some new faculties of the mind that would enable us to, you know, that seems out. So people didn't really challenge it. In the, um, in the, with the advent of the logical empiricism of the early 20th century and people like A.J. Ayer, for example, and they, they talked about this. The problem with the afterlife question is there's no way to verify the notion of an afterlife. Evidence, or yeah. confirm it, right? And so therefore Ayer said, you know, he said in the real world, he said it's like 
it makes sense to say that somebody underwent a total change of personality or, mm -hmm. you know, or, but to say that a man survives the annihilation of his body, that makes no sense if you allow yourself to think. And I mean, there's all kinds of notion of what constitutes the self, you know, and, um, but there I was and accepting all these things. And um, so I know full well that you, in, in, with certain provisions that you, it's not pot, scientifically, you can't prove there's an afterlife. The logic we have forbids it in a big way. And yet at the same time, there is things, I mean, I give up. You know, I mean, skeptics, I just, I was a professor of great philosophy. To me, I am so irritated with those morons in my <laughs> who call themselves skeptics without ever looking into the meaning of the term, right? But if they did, they would find that the skeptical movement originated with Pyrrho after about maybe 30 years after the death of Aristotle. Pyrrho understood logic very well, you know, and that was, and so his, what he said was, you, you think of, of logic as a uh, set of procedures for generating uh, conclusions from premises, for example. Well, um, it's, uh, he said, yeah, this is a good system, but just a minute here, let's suppose that what we did was that we followed the logical procedure, we ask every question and really bore down on our thoughts. But then our technique is to avoid drawing a conclusion. That is plainly what it means. In the earliest skeptical writing, surviving, like, um, Sextus Empiricus, and it says at the very beginning, um, and so, but the reason they avoided drawing a conclusion was not just to be vexatious, but rather that they discovered that if you practice that um, diligently, then two things happen. Number one, as Hume kind of mentioned, your mind opens up and does some you know, you can still get by in the daily world, more or less, but, you know, your mind is different. And also, if you think of it geometrically and everybody else is running in this direction to get to the conclusion, but your technique is to avoid a conclusion, then that opens up your peripheral vision, right? Where you see side paths of inquiry that everybody else had, had lost or missed. And um, so it just is totally offensive to me when I hear people say, oh, I'm a skeptic about these near-death experiences. I think it's just the chemistry of the brain. Yeah, well, let's yeah. just unpack what that person has just said, which is, I'm a person who doesn't draw conclusions, and my conclusion is such and such. And, and you know, this is what, to me, is just like so irritating. When I enjoy teaching ancient Greek philosophy, and these idiots <laughs> mess up that wonderful old term. But, and they actually should know that what they are is they are humanist. That is the movement that unfortunately has latched on to that term skeptic, which they don't know what it means. Mm -hmm. But all this sign, I am a skeptic. 
in the sense that I like Pyrrho is just natural to me. It's like, what's the rush to draw a conclusion? Okay. Mm-hmm. So, um, and so I know that logically a, a conclusion is forbidden unless we can solve Hume's problem. Now, I say that I have solved Hume's problem, not to pat myself on the back or to propound a new ideology. I don't like to wear tur- turbans but rather to make a challenge to people. And I just, and I'm not trying to sell a book here, but look, this is my life's work. I was, a philosophy of language was one of my fields in philosophy. And I studied, um, I grew up my doctoral dissertation on, on, on basically on the question of intelligibility. It's a long story, but what I've done is that I've worked out the logic of nonsense. Okay. And I know it sounds counterintuitive, and, but I challenge you, read it and tell me where I went wrong. I'm begging because if the demonstrations and the reasoning that I set forth in this are correct, and I've put them to lots of people, very severe critics who I asked, you know, try to refute this. Everybody says, no, you seems right. That, but if all this is right, then this is a major breakthrough in the genuine rational investigation of the question of the afterlife, which opens up a whole new rational way of investigating the question. Mm. And if, if somebody says, all right, you're wrong because this step is wrong, then I say, well, great, thank you, because now I am moved closer to the truth myself by seeing my mistake. Okay? I like it. I like it. Hand, if nobody can find any flaw in this, which nobody has, <laughs> then, then we've made a, a breakthrough in the, how we think about life after death. And this is I, this work based on a course I taught on, on intelligibility over decades and decades and developed it beginning in 1969 and how to think about things that don't make sense which is includes the notion of an afterlife. Now, what I'm getting at here is where am I on this? The reason I'm for this preface is that I would never say what I'm about to say um, unless I had some logical system in, in place where I think that people can read through this and decide for yourself. But if it, if it holds together, then we have a new way of thinking about it, which we can actually prepare our minds in advance for a lot of things on earth primarily. People in advertising say, this is great because the attorneys say, this helps me with my critical thinking. Um, medical doctors say, thank you, this helps to understand this patient and so on. But, but it, it also has one of its implications is a whole new way to think about and investigate the afterlife. And after somebody goes through this process and subsequently happens to have a near-death experience, then I predict, which has already been fulfilled once, to my knowledge, then that person will come back and, and be impelled for a reason that I can make obvious, to, to express this experience in a new way other than the travel narrative 
such that, and so we already have lots of cases of near-death experiences, which make the story of travel narrative, because it's seen through the Aristotelian lens of logic, which is just literal, okay? Now we have a system of thinking that is, is it incorporates the literal logic, is no, but it's also supplementary and new principles that come into play when you um, have something that doesn't make any sense, right? And so, and, and it's already happened once an eminent sculptor and uh, scientist uh, who took my course and had a near-death experience and came back and said, yeah, I said, you know, you, uh, while I was over there, he said, you were right. I saw, he saw you were right. He said, you can't comprehend how that world connects to this world unless you take the unintelligibility axis into account, which is what he said. But this gives you, once we have accounts that are viewed through this other lens, and then we can line them up side by side with the literal logic accounts that makes it a travel narrative. Then we have what you call parallax in astronomy, where it's like the way we know it's 4.3 light years out to Proxima Centauri is not that we sent a homing pigeon out there with an odometer. It's that, uh, you know, realized by the late 19th century they had the technology to measure closely enough where Earth is here in its orbit. You measure the angle to certain nearby stars. You um, wait exactly six months when it's on the opposite side, 186 million miles away. And so you measure again, and you did, and that's how you tell how far it is. Now, analogously, we have two different lenses for looking at the same experience. We can put them together. And so, um, and so with that and back now to explain my rationale to be able to, then I can go on to say, to answer your question, Craig, where I'm on, on it. It's like, basically, I give up. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know what else to say. I, I still, to me, it's still highly counterintuitive. It's not something that I was grown up, grew up to think. Um, but it's just literally, I just give up. I just, for example, I am. Uh, Maybe an account you've heard is that of this. I heard about this and it was so sensational. I've talked about it, and these folks have appeared on various programs. But uh, Jeff Olson is a is a uh, advertising uh, guy who's like he's uh, he's actually a fine arts person, but he owns an advertising agency. And um, very nice guy. And then uh, another Jeff is Jeff O'Driscoll, who's a, uh, an emergency room doctor who's been in that field for a long time. And basically, uh, Jeff Olson was in a horrific car crash where his leg was smushed off. His wife was killed instantly. Um, his, one of his children and then the other lived. But then... Um, Jeff had a near-death experience in the hospital. And uh, so on there at that night was Jeff O'Driscoll, the ER doctor, who said to me that he already heard from the nurse that something really odd was going on in this room where Jeff Olson was being resuscitated. But 
Jeff O'Driscoll said, well, I went in there and I saw uh, Jeff Olson's wife, who he had never met before, he said, but he said she she was familiar. I mean, it's like, yeah. and she was kind of hovering over wow. Jeff Olson saying, you know, he's got to go. I mean, I, I've got to go and he can't come. And, you know, in a very sad way. And then the nurse chimed in, saw this too. But my point is, that's one of them. But I, I know so many physicians who have empathically kind of co-lived their dying patients' near-death experiences. Or uh, these, um, you know, it's like people like to hold on to that Plato versus Democritus way of arguing because it's so frightening for many people mm. you know to have something to control it with they've got to have but you know it's like the reality is they focus in on the near-death experience which was partly my fault because I, I i knew of one case of the of a shared death experience already when i wrote my book life after life in 1974 it's like one of my own um, medical school professors who told me about an experience she had of leaving her body and seeing this light and seeing her mother spirit drawn into this tunnel. And, um, you know, while she was resuscitating her mother and, you know, rose out of her body. And, and you know, I've heard hundreds of these. And, and so, you know, that's, what are you going to say? Is this, does, does the oxygen deprivation hormones somehow leak out of the brain and affect the bystanders but but you know sometimes they they're across the country <laughs> you know so i mean i just i see people don't want to hear this but i get off <laughs> and um i don't know what else to say but that to my utter astonishment i gather that you know there is an afterlife and at the same time i would not you know, in the moment, have a thought of trying to convince anybody else of that. You know, I mean, people have got to think this through for themselves. But, um, you know, that's, I give up is all I can say. I mean, I, <laughs> I think at I the same time, before I went into forensic psychiatry, I was I, being raised by old people myself. Uh, <laughs> I um, have never had that thing about, you know, worrying about old. I mean, I'm just, I'm just fascinated with the process. And um, so I was, you know, I was in this position. I was, I had had a PhD in philosophy. Then I taught philosophy for three years before I went to medical school. So I was older than the other young doctors there. And also known for my book. And um, so I was, there's got to be in many small towns a place where the chief of police or the mayor or the city council or the local town celebrities can go to the mental health clinic, right? Yeah. I mean, it just makes sense. It's not elitist. I mean, it's just, so I was it. <clears throat> and so for this year, I, Talk to them, all these very eminent old people and uh, very accomplished and heard 
just like repeatedly during that year. It's like Raymond the old, and these were, they were mostly there because of loneliness, to tell you the truth, or situational stress. And um, we had somebody to talk to, I think. And so um, repeatedly I heard this, Raymond, the older I get, the more I just when I look back on my life, it seems to been like like a script or they use different words, movie or play or mm. um and I heard uh, the the mythologist Joseph Campbell make the same remark on one of his tapes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I just hear I've been, I've heard in Europe. I mean, you know, it's just people something to come up with. And, uh, you know, on the one hand, see, what is it that supposedly survives? Well, that's no easy question. Plato, it's got the ball rolling. Or maybe Pythagoras, his teacher, Pherakides, did. But the notion of an immaterial, immortal soul, okay, goes back. And so... Uh, they had a guy who was very famous at this time named Hermodimus, who had the talent of leaving his body at will. Everybody in, in Greece knew him. This is about 600 BC. And uh, Aristotle mentions him 280 years later. So, But he had the talent, apparently, being able to leave his body at will and go to look this distant locations. So, so that got these early philosophers saying, whoa, we seem to be made of two things. Which is the one? Which is it? You know, the soul, whatever that meant, or the body. So when it got to Pharakides and apparently and Pythagoras, it's the immaterial, immortal soul. And I think it was Pythagoras who put virtue into it, like the, you know, like that the the, the um, one of the soul's attributes is virtues, but then another one which uh, was in there and original from the original was uh, reincarnation and transmigration uh, wow. into other species. And Plato took this up and um, then it became official. I mean, I guess you could be roasted alive in a public spectacle by the church and the you know in the middle ages if you didn't subscribe to that notion yeah. <laughs> and so then as things loosened up a bit and people weren't so frightened to think uh thomas hobbs said well just a minute here this notion of an immaterial substance what does it mean it's nonsense so then Locke tried to rescue it by uh we are our consciousness. We consist of our memories and so on. Well, then Hume came along, and, and this is a hard one to me. He says, you know, when I honestly look inside myself, which I regard as most intimately myself, he said, I don't catch any substrate. He says, it's always just the impression of the moment, right? And, and so this is kind of what a lot of modern psychology has adopted, that the soul or the self is an illusion or something. Yeah. Well, I, what I've come to just from life experiences, I think that your personal identity consists of your story. If you think about it, the whole consciousness of people is mostly wrapped up in narrative, right? When something new happens to you, 
you weave it into your life story. Or you think about how many life stories you know right now that you can go through from historical figures or celebrities or all your relatives, you know, wow. And so it's narrative-based. And so um, I, my suspicion is that that's why Hume said in his essay, he said, you know, it's like he thought that the only kind of possible notion of an afterlife that a philosophical person could tolerate would be the notion of reincarnation. But I think my guess is that that's probably because Hume being a historian understood the role of narrative, right, in human affairs. So, so and now, now see, as a logician, I, just a minute here, right now, it's like one of Aristotle's original list of fallacies um, was, was uh, literalizing a metaphor. Right, which is like you take a metaphor, but you you project, you act, treat it as though it's literal, which you could say that's what Raymond is, is doing. See, that I'm taking the, the theater, one particular dimension or aspect of the human experience and projecting it out into the ether as a model of the whole. And that would be a logical fallacy. But I say no. I think it happened the other way around. Okay. Like a simulator? You think it's like we're in this simulator? Well, well I don't, that one, that, but first my, you know, my first thought is that I think the theater came from the realization of people of a certain maturity that life is a story, right? See, it's like the way it came about is pretty terrific. They had this old harvest festival um, which had been on for a long time where they had a chorus singing these stories. But then for reasons unknown, Thespis stepped forward and spake his own lines, okay? It creates a sensation. Well, what were the Greeks all about? Competition, right? The games, right? Let's have a, let's have a contest. <laughs> so, you know, the first winner escalates. Then Sophocles, then Euripides. And the way I think about it is that these guys realized, oh, yeah, well, you know, this is how life is. And we can kind of create this in a, in a like miniature, like a play within a play. And I think that's kind of right. I, I mean, I, as far as I can tell, this is story. And yeah. that, um, yeah. It's, it's pretty uh, interesting. I mean, everything is interesting. Uh, I've had, I think it's intuition plays a part. And when you're really, really logical, maybe it's hard for someone very, very left brain to, to, unless they have that actual science, which how do you have scientific evidence of someone who's already gone? Right. I mean, but these people who've come back, you know, these gone and come back. I mean, and two, I can even speak into this. Like I've had people who have passed and call me crazy, whatever, but I'm just saying, I feel like they're working on the other side still to some level, or, or maybe again, this could just be my simulator of my script of what I've made up in my story, but I've had, um, I've had, you know, just different dreams or what have you had one dream where my uncle had come to the foot of my bed. And then he just looked at, you know, I woke up, I looked, it looked like he was there. And I said to him, I didn't say anything. He, he just said, you're welcome. And then he like poofed and he was gone. And what I didn't know is he passed. 
during mm-hmm. that time. Wow. And also right after that, um, my now husband came into my life, which we were together years ago in high school and college, but I had couldn't find him or whatever. And my uncle actually had this real life story of being with the love of his life. He went off to war. He came back. She was married and um, he never married. And within, uh, I think he was like 60, 70 years old. And then finally his, um, his wife who became his wife had contacted him. And it was that first love of his life who came back into his life and his, her husband had passed and they ended up getting back together. So he got married at like 70 for the first time. And then here he comes before he leaves or whatever you want to call it. And he shows up at the end of my bed and just says, you're welcome. I had no idea why Brian enters in the picture within a week. And I, I was looking at all that going, Oh my God, he, he somehow had a part of that. I, I just, I can't prove it, but I know that that's what happened. I just know, because what would he be saying you're welcome for, except for he had this same story. And then I've also had a thing where I dreamed um, that I was in this situation and people were trying to kill me and all kinds of weird stuff. And I had on this necklace that said all caps immortal. And I woke up and I, cause I heard you are, we are immortal. And I knew that nothing could kill me. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that word you keep bringing up in this, in this interview. And it's just such a powerful word to me. Like it, it, I feel it in my body, even when I say it. And when you say it, it's like immortal, immortal. I, I'd love to look, maybe I should dig in to that word, but, um, it, what is the craziest experience that you've heard or registered or, um, you know, cause I know you're quite a, an engineer and very logic in your organization and testimonies that you've had. What can you give us a testimony of like, of any near death or is it, or is it because you saw all of them have this tunnel and the light? Is that seem to be the theme of every single thing when people pass or what are your, what speaking to that a little bit? Well, I think it's really important to realize that, you know, not all of the questions are about this are answerable from, <clears throat> from this framework, right? But what I would suggest as something that could be verified by looking at a lot of people, um, just uh, who are as they age. And it's been my observation for decades that as we grow older, experiences of seeming to step over into some other dimension increasingly become the norm. And that when you look at it, you see, for example, my wife She's very brilliant, okay, just beyond brilliant. And she's also great for me, not intellectual. Like she was into art, art sphere, stuff like this. She was a broadcaster. And, um, and, and Cheryl is like a grounded person. She comes from a Virginia farm, a 
okay? And um, so I remember her just a couple of years ago, just kind of looking off into the ether. And she's now 65. This was maybe 63. And she said, I see dead people. <laughs> wow. And, uh, and, you know, Cheryl is saying, I mean, hyper-saying. And, <laughs> um, and I hear this, I mean, just from people all the time. And I was going through the same thing about the same time. I, it's like I would just see people who didn't seem to be aware that they were dead. <laughs> Shuffling about. And, um, and it's like if you get a room of articulate, well-educated, thoughtful people together who are willing to share that. I, I just am sure that you get a startling number to add to. I mean, it's just demonstrably people who, one study in Britain showed that 66% of widows, which were studied because they're the largest bereaved group, weren't and um, 66% of widows reported lifelike apparitions of their husbands within after the death. But they, this study had already excluded subjects who had any kind of physical illness, even something like diabetes. Mm. Now that they, somebody could say, well, this, but now it's like every, all of these would be just judged completely healthy. And and all I mean it, that, but that's the same is true of bereaved parents, bereaved mm -hmm. it's, it's bereaved husbands. It's just a a dimension of life that has been uh, with us forever, as I gather from the ancient writings and so on. And um, you know, to me, I've always realized when I was a kid that I would never know much of anything. I mean, I tell you, looking through a telescope at age seven or eight, you know, I mean, I, but I'm content that I don't know very much, you know, but I have really spent my life trying to learn things. I mean, I'm just, you know, just not for any virtuous reason, but just mm. because it's so much fun to learn. I think, um, it, you know, I, I don't know about uh, any of you guys, but I feel like the more that you do learn, the more you, you realise you don't know. Exactly. It's that, it's that bizarre paradox. It's like, you know, when you learn something, you think, that's, wow, that's amazing. And then it opens up 10 new doors of things that are just like, well, I realise I don't know these things now. It changes your perspective. And I think that's just the eternal knowledge of, uh, a pursuit of knowledge, you know, um, and I think, you know, what we're talking about, certainly when we're talking about skepticism, I mean, we're living in a very um, materially focused world uh, and people are, are so focused on the material world that what they want is material evidence of yeah. the immaterial, which is which is you're not going to get. You can't. It's That's like trying to, trying to measure the temperature with a ruler. You can't That's do it, exactly. you know. Um, and, and so what, what we need to do is is look at these accounts and listen to them with, without any prejudice either way, whether you're for it or against it, like you, you've done and, and, um, and just look at it objectively. And, and so like, like what Sean, I was saying, um, sort of, have you got sort of something 
what's the weirdest account that you've you've heard? What what's the you know? Is there anything that's still a particular one that stands out to you? I think that really no. impacted me. No, really, I'm a person who sees patterns. Yeah, yeah. You know, what strikes me is the patterns, mm-hmm. and that it's uh, kind of like what Wittgenstein described as a family resemblance. Like, what do a bunch of people have in common? Right? It's like a, the Churchill face was the example he used, but like. A through, you know, L or whatever, the different characteristics, but no one face may have all of those. Mm-hmm. You know, one may have three or four or five or whatever. And that's how it is with near-death experiences. It's like um, there are patterns and that um, there's about 15 common elements that occur in, over and over, but not every person has every one. And it's, they include, for example, um, leaving the body, uh, hearing a bizarre auditory disturbance, leaving the body, um, going through a passageway, meeting spirits of departed relatives and loved ones, undergoing holographic panoramic memory where they review every event of their lives from the point of view of others who participated. Um, uh, different patterns of how they got back some spontaneously. They don't know how other people say, they told me you have to go back. You have things left to do. Others people, I got a choice. I can go back. And that, you know, all the ones I've known, you know, chose to come back and that choice, but it's almost always because of to have young kids left to raise or some other, it's always for somebody else. And so, um, and there are other things, too, even beyond that. People say they see whole dimensions where it seems to be devoted to knowledge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of people in these life reviews, they say that this presence they're with, it's, they say make Christ or God or an angel, or, but a completely compassionate being who knows everything about them, sees all this. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and people say that in scenes where they were have been learning something, that it's like this being kind of focuses in. And the thought comes, they say it's not like you hear a voice, but it's a thought that the thought is. Yeah. Even when you come over here on a permanent basis, this will go on. And like as Dr. George Ritchie said to me, he said, it's the process of learning. He said, was something I gather that goes on for eternity. And that people see these institutes where people are, are just working on things and thinking about stuff. And uh, then there's beyond that, even a, um, what people say, the civilization of light. Yeah. Like, there's no way you can describe it. They say that it's a whole cities that don't seem to be constructed of anything but light and that in them the people are all just everybody then uh, then even before that people say that also it's like kind of sandwiched in right kind of on top and in and amongst what we're in now there seem to be these other people who don't quite get it that they're dead and they're trying to repeat something Mm. And uh, it's it's like uh, the Greeks had this and the um, Oracle of the Dead scene in the um, Odyssey, Book 11, 
Odysseus goes to the underworld and he sees these people like the Sisyphus rolling the stone up the hill, but then it comes back down. These people in these repetitive cycles. And I was a lot of people who haven't read homework, you know, told that to me. But these are all the ones who have these parts are invariably almost the people who have these unbelievable cardiac arrests, like, you know, 40 minutes one dear friend of mine that it totally changed the doctor's life I mean, and uh, and uh, or in george ritchie even in 1943 was measurably without heartbeat for nine minutes they don't know how long he was in that state when the ward boy found him unresponsive in bed but uh, i mean it doesn't I this Dr. Francie said, I've never seen, so I've practicing medicine for 50 years. I've never seen anything like this, you know. Wow. And, wow. and, you know, it's like, for, like Craig was saying, if you acknowledge your own ignorance and, are, and you know, then, then, and, and are okay with the fact that you're ignorant as, as I am, acknowledge my ignorance willfully. Um, mm -hmm. but it's, you know, the nice thing about it is you do learn things and there's little bits, you know, and, and, uh, Plato, I think said that, uh, you can actually carry your knowledge over there with you. Wow. And that's, that's a good thought. I've heard others say that, yeah, mm -hmm. that, that even things you pick up here, it's, yeah. So do you think it's like a continuation of here? that you, you know, when people pass and it, it's just like, they just carry on or? I don't, don't know. I don't know, but I do know that as a change in coordinate system, mm. time and space don't work anymore. Yeah. No. yeah. Dr. Yeah. Eben Alexander, the neurosurgeon, you guys might know said, uh, he said, it's like the coordinate system is love and knowledge. Wow. That's cool. I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. system is love and knowledge. Who said that? Dr. Eben Alexander. He's a professor of uh, neurosurgery. It's Eben, E-B-E-N-A-L, Alexander, Eben Alexander. Okay. And um, he had a near-death experience. This is one of the things he said. Yeah. So basically time and space is, re is replaced with love and knowledge. That's yeah, amazing. I think that is awesome. <laughs> well, we are actually coming up at the top of the hour here. And I mean, this is like freaking fascinating. I mean, this Such is a deep topic. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we could do volumes and volumes of this conversation. But for the sake of time, um, Dr. Moody, if you could hold up your books and just give any final words and how people can find you and order your books and uh, anyone who's on this track, I would just really encourage you to, to check these things out. Well, thank you. I, I had several books. I, I, this one is, is really my favorite book because this is my life work. I've worked on this since I was a kid and it's how to think about things that it actually opens your mind to parts of your mind you didn't know you had. Mm. And this one is a recent one, too, that I really like. It's called God is Bigger Than the Bible. Yay! <laughs> it's like my views of 
or my experience with God that have come not from any religion, but from the, my, um, my just mainly at first through people with near-death experiences and then having a personal encounter. And then my favorite book is Life, uh, my, my most famous book is Life After Life, published in 1975, which is still in print. And it's my book about my investigations of near-death experiences. When I was a, a philosophy professor and a, a medical student. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we thank and you thank so you guys so much for yeah. listening. Thanks so much for everybody for listening in. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Any final words for you, Craig? And where can we find you? Um, <laughs> yeah, like, uh, like I say, find me on Facebook. Um, also, uh, got a crystal shop, crystalfalls.co.uk. Um, I play drums in a band called Nth Ascension. It's found us at nthascension.com. Um, connect, come and say hello. I'd love to meet you all. Awesome. And again, please do share this. I, I, I know there's a lot of people who would really love to hear this conversation. So I'm, please encourage you to share, like, and also um, go to swiftfire.org and get on our newsletter. So, you know, any of the other future guests and topics, um, any of the old podcasts that we've done before you can catch up on too, and definitely hit the subscribe button too. So you can get those notifications um, and yes, I'm so excited to, um, to have this time with you. I know how busy you are and it's just so generous of you to give you. this you know, time. This is just so much fun for me and thank you both so much for this. And I, I forgot to mention my website thing. Oh is, yes, your website. Yes, yeah. it's www.lifeafterlife.com. Life After Life. Yeah. Awesome. Yes. Lifeafterlife.com. You guys go there and, and there's a lot of really good information there. A lot of great resources, as well as if you go on YouTube, there's a ton of videos and what have you too, where you can get lots more um, research in this topic. So love you guys so much. Thank you again, everybody for being with us and we'll look forward to next time. Thank you so much. We'll talk Thank soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Nice to meet you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.